Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. We'd like to welcome everyone to the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. We're very excited to have you with us this week. And today we have a very special guest with us, Lenar Richardson. Lanier, excuse me. We yep, um, yep. we <laughs> we go back quite a few years. As you know, we actually met um, back when you were doing Brick City Development. We were kind of hanging out with Reese and uh, that was uh, seemed like many ages ago. But, Absolutely. Uh, good to see you again. A little bit more gray than you were before. I am. That's exactly right. COVID, COVID beer. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's good to have you here today. And uh, we're excited you were joining us. So um, so let's just go into it for the folks that don't know much about you and your background. Tell us just a little bit about, you know, how you got started in real estate. You know, were you one of those kids who your father was a great developer and they gave you all this money or, you know, what happened? No, I, I don't know many <laughs> I don't know any personally black folks that will say that. My background is my parents owned the bar. You know, every day we have to clean up the bar, restock the bar. That was how we, you know, sort of cut our teeth as as, uh, as teenagers. Okay. I started my career in real estate. I was a, a lawyer at a bank after graduating from law school. I worked at a big firm and knew I didn't like that. And I went to a law a, uh, a bank that had 90 lawyers in our law department. And every day... You know, we would make the legal department would document the loans of 90 million, 100 million dollar transactions to mm-hmm. a public utility or to a, you know, some big corporation. It wasn't until I got a chance to it was a pro bono project where the bank was making a hundred thousand dollar loan to like a local barber who was buying his building on the west side of Chicago, not far from where I grew up, mm-hmm. that the work really came alive for me. It was the same promissory note and mortgage and other documents. But it was sort of community impact oriented. Okay. I've been chasing that high, you know, sort of every sense of how to give resources to people and places that other people overlook or undervalue is how mm-hmm. I always talk, talk about it now. And so I left the bank two years after I joined a guy who was doing affordable housing. I worked for him for a couple of years and sort of learned housing. Mm-hmm. And then I left and spent about six years, seven years even. As an entrepreneur, I developed, built, and sold, you know, over 300 single-family homes and towns in Chicago. At the time, my thesis was getting young professional people of color back into neighborhoods that they grew up in where they went to church to hopefully strengthen the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And the goal at the time was to, you know, build modern houses with all the features and amenities that would attract young folks back to old communities. And so... I built five homes here, 10 homes here, 20 homes here. My largest project was 80 homes in, you know, south side of Chicago, all of which, you know, one was a little sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, low, it was some quote unquote affordable housing, but it was, yeah. you know, called it two to $400,000 single family homes back in, you know, sort of the tough neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. That was it. So I learned my, all my early work was around residential and community development, mostly in Black neighborhoods, which, you know, quickly became my passion. Gotcha. And then at the end, I had all the highs and lows of entrepreneurs, from Young <laughs> Entrepreneur of the Year, winning $100,000 in a pitch competition, to then wiping out, had to sell literally in a fire sale. 
mm. to go and take the job. I ended up working for General Growth Properties, uh, and really making the same the same focus of the work was in many other places where I was building houses, people always complained that there were you know insufficient retail amenities and services. Gotcha. And so general, I thought General Growth, there was a CEO who was really sympathetic to the work we were doing of, hey, I'd like to see more retail in, in underserved areas. And so I had a chance to work nationally to get retailers to, you know, basically black and, black and brown neighborhoods across the country. So we did a work in Detroit, mm-hmm. in Baltimore, in Birmingham, Alabama, in Harlem, parts of Milwaukee. You know, that was the work. Okay. And that, that was really the exposure. It was you know, sort of a national platform. General Growth at the time was a you know almost thirty billion dollar company, mm. and you know they retailers would come to us and say, "Can we get into your malls?" And I'd come to the end and say, at the end of the day, and say, "Hey, how about the west side of Chicago? How about West Baltimore?" And you know, try to you know get them yeah. to take a new look at, at an old neighborhood. And what would they generally say? I got a, a, a long video where they told me no so many times that they finally just said, you still working on that? Okay, I'll take a look. Right? So okay. it was like, no, oh, no, no, we do our own research. Oh, no, that's not our neighborhood. No, you know, our, you know, Target one time told me there was too many of our non-guests in the trade area, you know, keep their guests away. And I was like, what is that? Right? Yeah, so yeah. I've heard no a thousand times. But, you know, again, when I could... You know, what I found in retail is you have to build a relationship mm-hmm. almost before people would really even look, look, listen to you. Yeah. So once I built those relationships after a couple of years, I then could say there's pent up demand. There's not a lot of competition. You know, there's density. You know, there's you know, there's income. Right. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that was kind of a segue. It gave you the exposure. You got the national platform. And uh, was that around the time you started uh, formating uh, Brick City Development? Right. So, so in two thousand and eight, everybody know there was a recession. So everybody in development at General Growth basically got laid off. Right. I was in, and so I was trying to figure out a nice service. I was trying to figure out what I do, but I stay in Chicago, and I had met uh, Corey Booker in Newark, New Jersey. Okay. And he had started, and his team had started. Uh, an economic development organization for the city, sort of quasi-governmental entity. Mm-hmm. That was my first time ever doing anything in government. Typically, I petition government for incentives, mm-hmm. for entitlements. And so now to be on the other side during this period where there wasn't a lot of activity was a lot of fun. Corey, you know, such a charismatic leader, Newark was well-positioned. Mm-hmm. As the recession thawed out, we probably did $2 billion of new deals. The new uh, headquarters for Panasonic, the grocery stores, housing, restaurants. And so my job at that time was, I called it analyzing and advocating. You know, so our job was to convince the elected officials that this was a good project, to understand mm-hmm. which projects were finished coming out of the recession. And so that was, um, that was the time of working with, you know, sort of the Newark, you know, economic development organization. It was called Brick City under Cory Booker. It's now called Invest Newark under um, under Mayor Ras Baraka. Okay. And both, you know, the city of Newark continues to see development, to continues to make pro- progress because it has so many advantages and, you know, it has good leadership as well. And then finally, at the end of when uh, Mayor Booker became Senator Booker, 
I started thinking, well, I go back to Chicago. Where's, you know, what's, what's my, uh, you know, what's my next step? And I got an opportunity to work at Rutgers Business School. I had the entrepreneurship center there and raised capital for entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneur support programs. And what became a research, well, initially started as a research project, ultimately became a company that was launched with about $7 million of capital mm. from the MacArthur Foundation and Chicago Community Trust. So same thesis, how do you get more retail and services to strengthen neighborhoods, right? So I had this time philanthropic, <clears throat> I call it philanthropically motivated impact investment mm-hmm. to try to you know change neighborhoods and strengthen neighborhoods and ultimately invest capital in deals that are led by, you know, people of color. Right, right. Yeah, now that's very powerful. So, you know, thinking back to that time, I remember in 08 and around that time, and like I mentioned, when when we were uh, first had met, we were kind of in that, you were in that Brick City development frame of mind at that time. I remember Newark, you were talking about Newark, and it was like, that's the last place anybody wants to invest, right? It was a horrible city, at least the image of it was so bad. Uh, in comparison to like New York and other areas. And obviously you did a lot of work there on the waterfront and other areas, which which turned out to be great projects. And um, well, how do you see this change though? Because it seems like there was a real resistance to invest money with minorities and minority projects in minority areas. And it seems to be a shift now to where there's more desire to do so. You think that's more political? Is it real? I mean, what, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, it's still hard to get a deal done. So, you know, so, so Newark, you know, had all of these assets, right? It's, you know, it's 18 minutes from Midtown and in, in downtown Man- Manhattan, right? Yeah. It has an airport, a seaport, you know, uh, all the transit. It has five colleges and universities. So that's what we used, you know, those facts mm-hmm. to tell the story about why it made sense to you know, invest in Newark, and they continue to do that. As I said, that's no longer my day job, but, you know, right. to tell that story. And, you know, when you start looking at, you know, real estate's about, you know, value, right? Value creation and, you know, location dynamics. And so you start to look at that and you go, all right, it's, you know, half the cost of, of Manhattan, maybe, and, you know, there's a train line that connects us and the airport is right here. And so we were able to get, get some wins. I think this, you know, nationally just finding a return to urban and, you know, initially it was, you know, sort of urban downtown, chic urban, urban where the restaurants are mm-hmm. and urban central business district, you know, people are finding opportunity. want to, you know, not drive as much and, you know, you know, walk to work and walk to, you know, entertainment and services. And I think over time, you know, we're starting to continue to push that, not just in the central business district, but in the neighborhoods mm-hmm. that there, again, there's demand, there's land opportunity, uh, and there's ultimately a, a, an ability to create value and generate a profit. Right. So that's the uh, that's the nature of the world. Gotcha, gotcha. So so if we were to fast forward to uh, to the Tay's time, it, it seems like um, there is more access to capital. Would you say that there is, or how do minorities now that want to go into entrepreneurship and development and other things, how do they go about getting access to this capital that supposedly is earmarked for minorities that we always hear about in the press? Yeah, it's interesting, man. I mean, earmarked and how much is really getting out. Yeah. I, I think all those are still questions. Here, here's what I know for sure. In investable, getting land control mm-hmm. and structuring an investable project combined with just hustle 
mm-hmm. and relationships, you can find capital for your deal. Right. So it used to be like, oh, don't worry about the capital, the deals out there. Well, you still I mean it's not, I'm not saying it that it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. It takes all those other steps. But early on, it is, I've been spending a lot of time on the first hundred to a million dollars of capital because that's what's needed typically to do pre-development, to make earnest money deposits if you're not trying to acquire something. Mm-hmm. You know, at least get control because you got to have real estate starts, but you can't just start selling a planning project. You got to have some site control. Site control, yeah. I, you know, I got a contract. I got 60 days, 90 days, whatever it is to purchase the property. Mm-hmm. Here's what I think we can do or a year or whatever the, the time period. I've given their owner some earnest money. I now am engaging my professionals, environmental, you know, property conditions. If they're architect and engineering, you know, work that needs to be done in pre-development. And then all of the financial analysis. And once you can say, here's what I think I can do. I have a tenant. I have a incentive. If it's housing related, I have you know a tax credit or some you know uh, some some hook mm-hmm. that then allows people to understand what the investment proposition is that a, a project is investable or investment ready. Then I believe it's a matter of getting on in networks just like this and saying, hey, man, I got a project. I'm looking for whatever, you know, and the hard part is not even the debt. I'm looking for the the two to three million dollars or, or whatever it is, 10 mm-hmm. to, you know, one to 20 million dollars of equity needed to advance the project. That's where, the, you know, that's the tough capital. Right. The, the debt capital is, a, you know, there's a thousand sources, the mm-hmm. CDFI lenders, the, you know, traditional bank lenders. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, it's the equity that's needed that I still believe is the gap and where I'm spending a lot of time talking about friendly patient equity, equity like capital. I call it friendly mezzanine debt could work as well. Right. They yeah. ain't trying to, you know, take out the entrepreneur. It's that type of work. That's where the need is. And that's where I think we all should be talking about is how do we get more friendly patient equity and friendly subordinated debt, right? People say, oh, I got that. And when I call friendly debt, what's been really illuminating to me and both um, frustrating and in some instances infuriating, right, is there's capital, but there's also a whole lot of what I call non-friendly capital, right? Extractive capital. Hey, I need three points to even look at it. Mm -hmm. I need, you know, 12% prep. I want 50% of the profits and, you know, 80% of the profits. And so you're like, wait a minute, man, you know, kind of do this working community. You know, uh, I need you to pay all of our fees. Mm -hmm. And so I've spent a lot of time really working on how do you find, you know, either philanthropy or social impact capital, you know, that will say, look, I understand what you're trying to do, Joel. You're trying to, you know, build affordable housing and community. Mm-hmm. I got to have a reasonable level of underwriting and, you know, a belief that I can get my capital return. But my personal strategy has been not to try to go to pension fund and the traditional sort of equity capital route, because I'm trying to do work in, you know, the toughest part of the city and then include and intentionally include other people of color in the ownership. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I can't do all, you can't go to the tough part of the city, do inclusive ownership, attract retailers in a way and incentivize them to come and, you know, do market return at the same time, right? Yeah. So there's some folks who like doing market return, not trying to do all this other stuff. You know, my personal passion work is trying to find the area that other people 
you know, overlook or undervalue mm-hmm. and then try to, you know, try to go in there and pull all the pieces together. Yeah. Well, you bring up a, a very interesting challenge because that is the hardest piece of the, of the pie, you know, is how do you get that site control in the first place? And where do you get the money for the earnest money? And where do you get the money for the pre-development costs? And that's really what locks a lot of people out of it and why it's been a rich man's game for so long, you know, because you just don't, you just don't have that. I mean, everybody knows pretty much the strategy of trying to cut a deal with the site owner, you know, and, and trying to leverage that equity, but that doesn't always happen. And they're not always. It rarely happens. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So in, in cases like that, you know, for those who are, are listening and want to participate in this discussion, are you saying that you have found sources of access to that capital or is it so, more just so we know, family office philanthropic? I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think we should be hopeful about it, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, the Chicago Community Trust and a couple of other philanthropic organizations in Chicago mm-hmm. have created, created a pre-development grant fund that allows local and community, both for-profit and non-profit developers to get a grant of up to $100,000 to do pre-development on a project where they believe they can get site control. Okay. And I'm seeing more and more, you know, sort of program ideas around it, where it's literally uh, either a non-recourse, you know, low-cost loan mm-hmm. that allows you to, you know, you got to repay it, or there's some grant capital as well, right? And okay. so... I'm hopeful about that. But on the other hand, I do believe to have credibility in the game, you got to figure out either with your own capital, savings, if true. You always say people talk about friends and family, friends and family. I never overemphasize friends and family because for me, that's always been the hardest capital to raise. It's personal. Yeah. You know, and I, when I go to my friends, you know, go to they say, friends and family round, do the friends and family round. <laughs> I would say I went around to my friends and family <laughs> and I got a round of applause, right? They all support you. But, you know, someone putting yeah. in a twenty or $50,000, just my friends, that's meaningful capital to them. That's not someone said, oh, here, here I can write yeah. it out of my check. So I got to continue to get better, you know, big, uh, you know, more affluent friends, you know, to either do the friends and family app or, you know, you got to have some of your own capital to be credible, right? I think yeah. if you just, I have no capital, but I have this idea. I think it's hard. I think, you know, whatever that means, you know, so it can be, I borrow this from my friends and family and I'm at the table. This is my capital, mm-hmm. right? Because I've, I'm personally I obligated raise to it. other yeah. people to deliver it, mm-hmm. but I'm at the table as here's my stake in the game. And I do believe it's to, to really be credible. You have to have some, you know, 2%, you know, let's assume the equity requirements, a hundred thousand dollars. I think you should be at the table saying, you know, I got, $10,000, $20,000. Equity requires a million dollars. I think you could say, look, I am here at least with $50,000 of my own money, right? So yeah. Somewhere between, you know, on the low end, you know, probably two or 5% if the numbers are really big, mm-hmm. or it could be as much as 20% on a small, on a smaller project, right? Yeah. I'm trying to flip out. I got to have some money in here, you know, to make people believe I'm credible. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a valid point. You know, you mentioned something earlier about, um, you know, friends and family, it's it's significant and meaningful money for them. You know, in most minority communities, uh, there, there isn't nobody sitting around with an extra $200,000 just to invest in your project, right? That That's their whole retirement savings. So, you know, it becomes even tougher in the uh, in the minority communities in a case like that. So, you know, how do you how do you try to 
figure that out in a case like that is just really, really challenging. But um, you got to find a way through it. Now, you talked about one of the things that you did and one of our other guests we had talked about before as well, how they, um, you know, just did single family fix and flips to kind of get some of that seed capital to do some of those things. You know, and it sounds kind of basic, but, you know, it is foundational capital to kind of get you going. You know, and that's something yeah. that's a level most people can projects. I mean, I think that's right. You know, so doing single family homes and, you know, fixing, flipping. I wish I would have held more. I always tell people I developed, built and sold over 300 homes. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I got to General Growth. And then I even got to Newark. I met this guy, Jerry Gottesman, who owned Edison Properties. And he was like, we never sell. And I was like, man, if I would have just not <laughs> sold, yeah. you know, 20 percent of the homes that I built. Mm-hmm. They'd be paid for by now, you know, until the early 2000s. And, you know, they, they refinance in real estate. That's one of the advantages. You refinance, it's tax yeah. advantage. It's the refinancing and not, you know, not selling. So you look for those opportunities. Right. Uh, but again, I am, I do believe early on getting some initial success. Hey, what, I fix the house. I take people through to it. You know, when I built my first four houses, you would have thought I built 40 houses, right? Yeah. So that was, you know, because people, I walked people through and said, I could do this. Same way with our shopping center work. You know, we did our first shopping center. We bought it last January. And, you know, we have bought three others since then. And our goal is to buy, you know, as many as 10 additional uh, by the end of the year. So, you know, we continue to do that work as, as we, you know. But same way, I'm raising capital. I'm getting the right resources in place. Uh, to continue to advance the work. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, go ahead. I saw a question about the crowdfunding. And, I, and I, let me just spend a quick minute there. So okay. When we bought our first shop. Actually, let's do this if you don't mind. Let me oh, have cool, Kwame okay. ask his question because oh, then cool, when cool, he cool. can ask it, yeah, he can articulate it better. Great. It's uh, it being typed in the box. So okay, we generally open up for cool. questions around this time. So Kwame, go ahead and. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much. So- Thank you. Thank you, Joel. So Lanier, I have to say I've been following you for a while on, on your journey. And I got I heard about you through crowdfunding. I saw you on small change when you did that project. And I have to tell you, I got really excited about it. But by the time I put my money down, the, the deal was gone. <laughs> you had <laughs> raised the capital. So can you talk about kind yeah. of your efforts with crowdfunding, why you chose that and what the impact it's had on you? Yeah. So when we bought our first shopping center, Basically, we did it with small syndicates. I'd call, hey, Kwame, hey, Monica, hey, Joe, y'all want to invest with me? You know, and, our, you know, $30,000, dollars $50,000 from, you know, small groups of, of, you know, Black entrepreneurs. And my focus was always that if more people of color owned assets in their communities, our communities would be stronger, right? And so my, my talking point is wealth is created by owning assets that generate recurring revenue and appreciate over time. That's real estate. Real estate is one of those, real estate or businesses. And so the big focus, even after the George Floyd murder, there was looting on the, you know, in the areas where we've been working to do our retail investment. And my my analysis was, hey, nobody black owns the commercial corridor. They they shop there, but they don't they don't even know of the black property manager, a black leasing person. So my thought was when we bought our first one, we we bought it. The property manager was African-American. The leasing agent was African-American. We had to build out a space for a, uh, a tenant. It's, you know, like a 5,000 square foot. The architect was black. The contractor was black. We had to do a roofing job. The roofer, you know, we found a black roofer. Um, insurance. We found someone to insure the shopping center was a black insurance agent. 
even the landscaper, and I always joke like that, even the landscaper was, was a person of color. Wasn't that we were only going to, you know, only black supply. It was like who we know and who our network was. And our thought was that if more people of color owned or had some type of stake in the shopping center around where they live and work, that they would, you know, patronize it, protect it, and hopefully strengthen the asset and value to it and strengthen the neighborhood as well. When we got to Baltimore, that's all those, the first deals were in Chicago. That's where the comp- company's located. That's my hometown. When we did our deals, we, I met this guy, uh, I sat on a board with him, and he's like, why don't you come to uh, come back to Baltimore? You know, I'd worked in Baltimore in early 2007, 2008. And so we looked at some projects, and we found one or two centers that we liked. We, in talking to, you know, about inclusive development, someone said, well, why don't you, you don't know, you know, we don't just want in Baltimore. They're like, we don't just want, you know, Lanier and his friends to come do a deal in Baltimore. We like to have community ownership. And I thought that's an interesting idea as well. I met with E. Picker, who's the CEO of Small Change. And we worked through this crowdfunding platform, not knowing how it was going to work, right? Because, you know, you have to basically put everything about the project online. And, and because of the SEC rules, you can't really advertise, right? It all has to go through this mm-hmm. platform. So I wasn't sure how it was going to work. Early on, it's like anything else. You know, I've, there's a political slogan that says, it's called Emily. Early money is like yeast. So early on, I was calling my friends like, hey, Joe, can you invest a thousand? Can you, I just need to get some momentum. Yeah. But then there was an article that uh, was written about the project and the crowdfunding effort in the Baltimore newspaper, Baltimore Sun newspaper. And within 48 hours, it was fully subscribed. So we raised $330,000 from 130 plus uh, local black and other impact investors, right? The average investor, some people invest $10,000, but the average investor lot invested a thousand. So the average investment amount was about $2,500. And I really now, you know, it's funny. I have a younger brother who's in traditional private equity. He called me. He said, man, congratulations. You raised $300,000 in like a couple of weeks from 130 black small investors. And then his next comment was, man, I sympathize with you. How are you going to manage 130 <laughs> black folks with $2,000? Right? So I figured that out. Right. So we just we bought the asset of not even a month ago. We've had our first investor communication. But I really do believe. Local ownership is going to really, you know, I have charter school parents. I have residents from a few houses away from the shopping center we purchased. I have people who go to church and, you know, in the neighborhood. So there's still theory of how do we strengthen our own neighborhoods? How do we own assets in our own community? And, you know, people always fear gentrification. Well, you know, one way to deal with gentrification is just to own something, right? So if we own assets that appreciate and so I have all these dreamy social impact goals about it as well, that people will feel this connection, that young people will know people of color who own it and manage it now as a black property manager. And, you know, we'll, I'm sure over time engage more people of color as well, you know, to continue to, to work on the project. And so it worked, right? We had to, it caught, you know, it's like anything else. To do crowdfunding, I think, successfully, it takes some seed money. We had to do a video. We had to pay for lawyers. We had to put a compelling financial offering there. You know, we had to pay the platform. So even the crowd, you know, my mother used to always say it takes money to make money. Even the, you know, launch a crowdfunding campaign probably cost us, you know, ten or fifteen thousand dollars. 
cars. So, you know, to do it right, you got to do a little outreach, you know, even getting some attention, you know, to, you know, to the cap, uh, campaign that resulted in that article. All of those are, uh, are factors. Yeah. Good points. Good points. Kwame, you feel that covered your question? Okay, fantastic, fantastic. And uh, for anyone else that's uh, with us today, um, you know, generally at this time, we do open it up for additional questions. So if you have anything that you would like to share, uh, please put those in the chat. And uh, we'll certainly let you come on and, and state your question and see if we can get some answers from Elanir also. So um, good stuff. So let me ask this. Uh, what, what do you think the future holds for minorities that are trying to play this game in commercial real estate? You think we're headed forward? We're headed backwards? Things are going to stay the same? You know, the George Floyd thing is just going to die down and things are going to go back to normal? I mean, what, what do you think is going to happen here? All I can say is I'm hopeful, man. There are these big old macro announcements about capital being available. There's programs that are focused on identifying, you know, entrepreneurs of color, developers of color, and getting them capital and adding capacity to them. I think there's recognition that, you know, if we don't solve the racial wealth gap and, you know, sort of systemic inequality stuff, you know, our country's not going to be as strong as it could be. Right now, again, all that's, you know, there's no future in being pessimistic, right? So all that's optimism. And I think now I'm hearing and seeing folks who are, you know, driven, entrepreneurial, that they're finding opportunities. Well, this isn't the question, is this just for this year or this, this moment or will it be a longer term is your question. I just know people are making moves and I feel a pressure, like an urgency right now to find a deal, to structure a deal, to make an ask, you know, and I think all of us should be, you know, let's test it. Let's find a deal, structure a deal, see if we can, you know, uh, find the capital for it because people are saying we want to do deals with people of color. We want to do deals that will strengthen communities of color, you know, and that's, um, you know, we got to see yeah, if test it's real. It. We got to see if it's real. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, call it to the mat. No, I, I all the big banks. I just posted something on LinkedIn, and I really am trying to figure out how to pull the right team together. You know, there was there was uh, an article that said, you know, last year after George Floyd sort of death, there were fifty billion dollars of announced commitments to racial justice investing and diversity and inclusion initiatives. But the article was saying that less than you know one percent of that capital is actually been deployed some some crazy number mm -hmm. so you know I, i'm trying to figure out how to pull a group together to make some noise to create a report card to hold those big you know facebook announced some chase bank nike the you know at&t google all, all announced amazon all announced these big old you know commitments and so now we got an a make sure they live up to it but then b make sure we have progress i call them vehicles investors here, yeah. you can do this deal. Here, here's another organization. Here's somebody trying to do something. Put the money here. Put the money here. These are trusted partners. They have expertise. They have, you know, commitment and experience. Let's do a deal with them. And the deals that they're structuring make sense, right? It's yeah. not, and it's not all grant money. I think there's a place for grant money, but there's also a place for this, you know, again, subordinate debt, program-related investments from a foundation's perspective uh, that can help drive drive deals and help us get deals done. Yeah, yeah. You know, Lanier, you, you bring up a good point. And that's, you had asked me earlier before we started uh, really doing this this podcast as to what was the objective. 
And one of the things that we are trying to do is to show that there are uh, developers and minorities that are out there trying to get stuff done, you know, that are trying to do deals. Because often what I found and what I'm hearing feedback on is that it's just the people that they always already knew about that are getting the capital. So you got your H.J. Russell and your people like that. And it's like, OK, well, everybody knows about them. But what if you're not on the cover of Forbes? Right. Well, what if you're not in that circle? How do you get that exposure so people can know that you're trying to get deals done and no, get access to that capital? It's a good question. And, you know, so I'll use a guy from my experience in Newark, and I encourage more the developers of color to, to take advantage of this. So there's a guy in Newark, I'm going to blank on his name that quick. I just had it on the tip of my tongue, who, you know, basically came into the economic development office and said, hey, I live here. I have some capital. I've got my degree in engineering. I want to do development in our city, right? And so he became everybody's, um, you know, sort of local favorite. We wanted to help him. We wanted to find him opportunities. Mm-hmm. We wanted to connect him with capital. And I believe more and more people can do the, uh, more and more people can do the same thing as well. Like sort of go in to the economic development folks, <clears throat> to you know, local philanthropy, and say. Here's my background. I have a little bit of capital. I see this as an opportunity. I believe I can control this project. Can we have a conversation? Right. Yeah. And so it's like anything else, it's like relationship building. And I just think more early stage folks should. I sit on the board of something called the Cook County Land Bank in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And there's a the executive director there and the leadership, a guy named Rob Rolls, has done an outstanding job of creating a program to help black developers get houses and land from the land bank. I know Newark is planning to do the same thing. What they always say is, let me just meet some folks that are credible. And credible doesn't mean you got to go there and say sort of puffery. Like I got all this money. You say, look, I got enough money. I can get a good project. I can figure out how to finance it, that type of stuff. I think that's what more people call need to do. Yeah, you know, we we might even need to talk about this offline, but I think that that's something that we might be able to come together and do collectively uh, because we have that same mindset and being able to, as you mentioned, create that report card where we identify all these people who have made commitments to capital. I have tons of deals crossing my desk, some of which I participate in, and to be able to say, hey, here's a deal. You know, put your money where your mouth is. You saying that you're going to do this? Here's an opportunity to do it. Here's the credibility. We could help these guys, uh, these developers assemble a team, get the expertise behind them, get some of that early uh, pre-development capital that you were talking about. I don't see why we can't put that all together and and make something out there and kind of keep that report card, uh, even with your resources at the uh, university. Uh, We might be able to do something like that. That's exactly right. So we'd love to work with you. I just, it it got brought to my attention last, last week you know, university, we do have some resources. The question is, how do we, you know, and I want to do something quick, right? I think the yeah. now is the time, right? So we we want to do something good and thorough and, you know, uh, respect it. But quickly, you know, it's been a year now. We could probably poll, uh, you know, enough of folks that we know in the space and say, you know, who's doing good stuff, even if it's just perception. Right. You know, so J.P. Morgan Chase made a $30 billion commitment. Who do you know? Mm-hmm that J.C.P. Morgan Chase is supported, right? And, and, you know, again, I think we can, some people will say, yeah, absolutely. They they made the commitment and they followed through on it, which I actually think is largely the case with J.P. Morgan Chase. Yeah. But then there are others who, you know, we should, you know, again, you shine the light on the good actors, 
to motivate the bad actors. Right, right. Uh, or the folks who just haven't found a way. And hopefully they'll come out and say, man, you know, help me, you know, help us figure it out. That's what we hope. Right, for. right. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, we had put it out there that we had access to some of that committed capital and um you know the amount of deals that have been coming our way has, has been extensive because of that so i think if we had something cohesive like that we could certainly make that happen so let's talk more about that that's totally off the cuff right you know, this isn't scripted but uh you yeah, know i'm, I'm glad stuff. glad you came on today because we're thinking the same way so good stuff quinn has got a couple of questions here quinn you able to come on and um, ask your questions and kind of bring those to the table yeah, Joe, I'm not going to take too much time. Thank you for the conversation. It's, it's sure. great dialogue. So really just wanted to get some perspective from Lanier on the opportunity zones and, you know, how that was pushed out to our communities and if those are even still relevant or if there are, you know, any insight in terms of opportunities there. And then also just the impact of the proposed changes on 1031 exchanges, uh, because, you know, you think about where investment is going and, you know, typically it's tax related folks who already have big money that need to need to place capital. And if that's going to deter people with capital gain stuff, does that present opportunities for folks who don't have those deep pockets? Yeah, both interesting questions and somewhat related. So like everybody, when Opportunity Zones were first announced, I was excited. I probably sat in on 12 webinars and conferences <laughs> about Opportunity Zones. And what became clear was there were some areas that were, they call them Christmas tree areas, where, you know, how that site get in the Opportunity Zone, right? And that, <laughs> and all of the traditional, well-capitalized uh, developers who didn't look like us already had th- those sites under control and they were able to get their tax advantages mm-hmm. in, uh, of, of Opportunity Zone. But what also became clear was folks who were looking, you know, again, my work is in ethnic, urban, and underserved areas intentionally, right? And so what I initially hoped was, all right, great. People are now going to have an incentive to invest on the South Side and the West Side. And you said that's, that's what it is in Chicago. But two things became, became sort of evident. One was folks were still looking for market capital. They were like, great, the tax return is just an additional benefit, but I still want to get, if I think I need to get a 12 IRR, I want to get a 12 IRR and I, I want to get this tax advantage. And so, again, I always thought if, the, if you're going in the toughest neighborhood and you're doing, you know, this Herculean work, it's, I think it's difficult in many instances to say I can get a, you know, a market return, right? And it's just, what this, again, it's just not where I like to start from. And so that's, that's been my concern with Opportunity Zone, that folks initially thought it was going to attract this, all of this additional investment and do it in a way that was, you know, would incentivize it in the toughest neighborhoods. I just haven't seen that happen yet. And because it had, you know, all these sort of rules, it takes, you got to, you know, improve the property within 30 months. And so, and it was a tax advantage as opposed for, for the investor. It just, I haven't seen it achieve yet its full potential. I and mean, maybe someone else has. I just, I haven't seen that experience. And similarly, I think with 1031, I mean, I'm still hopeful that, that folks will start to just say, all right, can I put some of my capital in the toughest part of the city, because I'm always have hope with 1031 that someone was like, the time I got to do something, do something tomorrow. And I'd be like, all right, come to the west side, right? You know, mm-hmm. come to the south side, right? The timing was going to create 
create opportunities. Because I don't, I just don't know if structurally, you know, getting deals done in the toughest part of the city has yet been properly either incentivized or illuminated, uh, especially by opportunity zones. And I, again, I'd love someone else to say, no, I've seen it differently. Opportunity zones have been great. Again, I know people talk about them. Everybody can state the rules and there've been all these, you know, sort of conferences and pub, but I just, I, I don't have a lot of examples yet. And if someone else does, I'm, I'd love to hear. Yeah. What about the 1031? Well, go ahead, Quinn. I'll let you, it's your question. Yeah, no, so that's 1031, same thing. It's just like, will it incentivize other investment? And again, they're talking about changing the 1031 rules. I think everybody's a little, yeah, every, and that comes up probably every couple of years. Are we going to change 1031? Again, my my goal always with 1031 is to have deals that are ready so that hopefully when someone who has, you know, a timing issue, I they, they may not have normally considered it. They're like, oh, I got to place this money by, you know, two weeks from now. Well, here, you can do this. You can buy this. You can put you can, you can put some capital here. All right, good. Quinn, does that take care of your question? It does. It does. I have one other follow-up question that's in a different direction if you got a couple minutes. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we got a couple minutes. Okay, so Lanier, I know you're working with entrepreneurs and you got, you know, an audience of folks who may have interest in development or entrepreneurship. Can you talk about possibly even the importance of joint venturing with somebody who has some experience or having somebody with a balance sheet to help you get some of the resources that you're going to try to get if you're a brand new entrepreneur or developer? Because a lot of times if you're not coming to the table with any experience, then generally people don't want to, it's hard to get under it and it's hard to be bankable. So can you just speak to either JV or having somebody with a balance sheet that can kind of help you across the finish line? So so both. So, you know, again, I do believe to credit to Credibly be in the game and not be a front, right? You got to have, you got to be able to say, here's my resume. Here's what I've done. And the resume, again, doesn't have to be embellished. I grew up in this neighborhood. I understand the corridors. I went to school. I studied real estate. I've been working in this corporate job. And I now have decided I want to pursue, you know, a real estate opportunity or entrepreneurial opportunity in my neighborhood, right? So it it should be 100% factual and transparent. Here's what I'm trying to do. Right. And I think to be credible, you need a little bit of money. So I'm willing to put some of my money in. I've used it to create the initial plan or do the financial model or in best case to have some site control. Or I, I now know the economic development office or the mayor's office or the local you know, elected official is going to support me in getting the needed incentives or zoning change or any of that stuff. Right. All of that is equity. I know the neighborhood. I can help you navigate. I know the political leadership. I got experience. You know, I'm not just, you know, I'm not long for the ride. And I even got, you know, some of my capital. Right? You know, uh, I remember when I borrowed my first loan, it was like $400,000. And, you know, I only had, I don't know, sixty or $70,000 of my own money. But I remember the banker like, well, you know, you got to sign a personal guarantee. You got to do all this stuff. And he was like, I'm going to give you what you need, but you got to give me what you got, right? I need to know that you're committed as well. And so my sense is you want to approach joint ventures from a position of strength as well. It's like, hey, who else has interest in doing this work in neighborhood? Who has capital, right? Who, as you said, who has a long track record that I can joint venture with in a way that ultimately helps get the deal done? 
And then what's your proposition to them, right? Based on, you know, there's the narrative part of it. Here's what I'm trying to do. And there's the numbers. Here's the performer for the project, right? And I just think there's a negotiation to be had. It's not just all around where you're putting in 80% of the equity. I'm only putting in 20% of the equity. So you get 20%, 80% of the project. I think the, the art is convincing the equity provider that you created the opportunity, you have these relationships, you have your capital, and you know, and therefore the equity split should be, you know, more equitable, right? Um, mm. You know, not just based on the money that's provided, and all that's one hundred percent relationship based. So, you know, I I recommend entrepreneurs really leverage the trade associations as well: ICSC, ULI, IEDC. NAOP, the local, you know, real estate board, right? Because that's where, you know, people are right? and who have an interest in real estate that you can see, you know, in virtually now on a, a session or in person when we get back together, you know, at a cocktail party, you can start to build those relationships. I met, I met, you know, I worked for John Buxbaum at General Grove. I met his father at an Urban Land Institute event. And just said, hey, you know, I've been doing these houses. I'd like to do retail. That was the start. And I have a number of instances where my investment in the trade associations has paid dividends, right? ICSC, ULI, and others. Yeah. Good point. Thanks for bringing that out. We appreciate that. Yeah, I know Uh, you all, a lot of people are in REIT, right? That REIT network is close and is growing in power. I mean, it's so exciting to see, you know, people get the little announcements every week. Somebody's got a new position as vice president of asset management, you know, Angel, you know, head of real estate at, at Rite Aid, you know, people climbing the ladder. This network, I'm sure, is going to continue to grow in power. Uh, and we'll yeah. be calling them. Hey, man, I, I got this property. Can you can you consider, you know, doing a deal with me? Sure. Very, very valuable. Absolutely. So thank you, Quinn. Thank you for uh, contributing and bringing that to the uh, fore today. Rob, you had a question. You mind coming on, Mike, and uh, sharing your question with us? Sure, sure, sure. Lanier, good to see you. It's been a, hey, been Rob, a few years since you, we've man. seen each other. Mm-hmm. Um, Talking about growing yeah. in power. That's a power player right there, Rob, the power player. <laughs> hey, man. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. I had a quick question for you. You kind of touched on it earlier, talking about kind of retailers and where I'm working with them. How was how that going, and what approach are you taking with your centers as you um, acquire them and kind of getting that right mix and what kind of feedback are you getting from and kind of especially the regional and, and national guys? Yeah, no, thank you for the question. So our focus initially has been on acquiring what I call service-oriented community shopping centers. Uh, this is um, uh, less than 50,000, you know, 20 to 50,000 square feet is our sort of sweet spot. And services, is I call stuff non-Amazonable. Right? Or uh, it's takeout restaurants, right? Carry out pizza, carry out chicken. It's a drugstore. We got a deal in Baltimore has a, a Save-A-Lot, Dunkin' Donuts, Jenny Craig, MRI centers. More regional. You know, I have a couple where you have, you know, we have Boost Mobile and Deno. Deno uh, we got a chain that has about 16 dental offices in two of our centers. But then also a lot with local entrepreneurs as well, right? So it's that that mix of what makes a community center feel like a community center. The one property we, it's like an outlet on a Walmart, it's an outlet for a Walmart center where we own, it's a small little 10,000 square foot. It's a Atletico National 
Boost Mobile National. We are uh, uh, excited about an African-American um, entrepreneur opening a UPS store franchise. So franchising is also something I love to explore more and, and uh, create occupancy, uh, you know, create, create tenants you know, to take up occupancy as well. So we're creating tenants by helping more entrepreneurs become franchisees. I love, we had a great conversation with some of the pizza franchises, UPS stores. This will be the second one we've done. Some of the insurance agents uh, nationwide, say farm, that kind of stuff. So that's been our, our work. We haven't gotten to, you know, it's going to be interesting. Can we get more drugstores? Can we get more? I love health, the healthcare stuff. That's been great tenants and so urgent care and we haven't done dialysis and I know that falls in that thing, but you know, it's uh but urgent care, physical rehab, I got MRI center, dentist, you know, that kind of work I love to do more and more of. Yeah. It sounds good. Rob, does that does that cover your question? That covers my question. Thank okay. you. Okay. Well, good to have you here today. Thank you for participating. We certainly appreciate right. it. Absolutely. So uh so Lanier, we're we're down to kind of the the end here and uh it's been a great, great call. You know, we certainly appreciate all your input and, and follow through. And uh, so what do you think the future holds? I mean, what would you like to see? And, you know, how can we uh, make that happen? You know, so again, you've been at I this for the, a long time, man. Yeah, I think I think <laughs> the future is if there's a chance, there's a the time is now for us to make moves. Mm-hmm. And I think that is finding deals that you can control that and getting them investment ready and making the ask. This is yeah. the time to be bold in making the ask. So if you have something like, hmm, I've been thinking about doing this forever. I think there's a way that I can get it under contract or mm-hmm. already own it. I'm trying to figure out how to build the capital stack in a different way. Uh, or, you know, there are all these programs now, like we're, uh, we're um, supporting a program in Chicago called the Emerging Minority Developer Initiative, which is trying to identify high potential, you know, developers of color and then help them get resources, help connect them to joint venture partners, help them respond to mm-hmm. city issued RFPs. Interesting stuff. I heard I read something similar happening in Philadelphia and uh, and I'm sure in other places around the country where there's attention to we got to do something, you know, to support folks, you know, black and brown folks like us. So be bold is my thought. Find a deal, be bold, make the ask. Nobody says it's easy, but, you know, this is passion work for us all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, good stuff. Good stuff. I actually know about um, a project on that west side of Chicago. So well, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that offline. But uh, like you said, I I completely agree. You know, now is the time to make the ask. People have made this money available. You know, it's a shame on us if we don't go out there and, and go after it. Right. And, and try to, you know, tie it down. Uriah has um, uh, been hanging out with us since the very beginning. So I got to give him the last question of the day. So uh, Uriah, go ahead. You got the floor. Hey, thanks, Joel. Hey, Lanier, <laughs> thank you. This is a phenomenal insight. I wanted to know if you can provide some guidance around navigating the political, the local political <clears throat> dynamics, whether that's engaging with city council, neighborhood groups, zoning board members, et cetera, to get a project approved within the community. I wonder if you can shed some light on some of your experience there and some some insights on how to successfully navigate those waters. Yeah. Now, and to do urban development, it's having good relationships are obviously critical. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the case everywhere. But then I think especially in communities of color, 
understanding who the local elected officials are. And, you know, alderman, city council member typically has some voice in, you know, zoning change. Mayor's office, deputy mayor, economic development folks, state and local and county and regional, right? Just understanding who those folks are. I also tell people just getting out talking to folks. So who's, you know, there's this broad uh, statement around, we got to have community support. And someone will say, well, well, who's community? Who defines? If I talk to Joe, did I talk to community? If I talk to Amber, am I talking to community? Who's, who's community, right? So my sense is finding those community organizations and just sort of answering the question. My example, in Baltimore, I hadn't worked in Baltimore in a dozen years. I just did one by one. I contacted somebody I worked with 12 years ago and said, man, who should I be talking to? And they connected me with a group of 12 African-American ministers. And then those ministers connected me with the uh, parent association at the local charter school. And so I did a session at 8.30 in the morning, 11.30, and at 6.30. Here's who I am. Here's what our project is. And there was an African-American um, group of developers, Black men. You know, I got on a Zoom call with them and said, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's what I'm doing. Tell me about you all. All of that is currency, right? It's like putting pennies in a piggy bank, so to speak, that people got to say, I know this person. I know Uriah. I understand what he's trying to accomplish. I believe the brother's gener you know, uh, genuine in his approach and the deal makes sense. And, you know, every now and then you have to change the deal some or negotiate with the community around, you know, what this, what you want to do and why it's relevant now. But that's all part of, of the process. And you just, you can't be shy about it. You can't lean away from it. It's been cool for me this last year. I've been able to do a lot of it on Zoom call. Right? I didn't have to. And so, you know, I probably have done, you know, community meeting Zoom calls with five to 50 people and just, you know, put myself right on the line. Here's who I am. Here's why this is important. Here's what this moment's about. You know, here's how the deal is going to be structured. Here's what we're going to need from the city. At some point, we're going to need your support, community letter or email to show up or elected official. We're going to need your support because we're asking, you know, the city to provide some resources and they're going to want to know that local alderman or local city councilman, you believe this is a good idea, right? So lean into it, man. All right. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Sounds good. Sounds good. So, Daniel, we, we greatly appreciate it. We got to do a better job of keeping in touch. We can't let so many years go by, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. This, is, uh, this has certainly been great. Um, definitely want to talk to you offline about some of the things we discussed today because uh, yeah. we're, we're, we're in the same groove. We're just in two different cities. So we could bring that Absolutely. power together and make something happen. But uh, it's been great. You know, this is a fireside chat, the uh, Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. We're very grateful to have you all here today. And uh, Lanier, thank you as always for being here as well as all of our guests and for your participation. And uh, we look forward to seeing you guys next time. All the best. Thank, thank you, Joel. All right. Thank, thank you, you, everyone, for listening. Absolutely. Take care. All right. All right. Have a good afternoon, guys. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.